Hello, I'm Maddie Savage. Thanks for downloading the Stockholmer, the podcast that's painting a picture of Sweden's innovative capital. The Stockholmer. Graffiti basically is is communications, right? But instead of communicating to to the society, we communicate to each other by tags and paintings that other people necessarily don't understand, but we do. That's 24-year-old Artan Mansouri, who grew up spray painting and is now one of Sweden's leading entrepreneurs working with wearable technology. In this episode, we take a ride to one of the capital's northern suburbs to hear his journey. The Stockholmer, Artan. Set the scene for our listeners. Where have you taken us? Yeah. Hello, everyone. So, <laughs> all right. We're in Hesseby Strand. Hesseby is where I grew up. Very green, first of all. Um, you only see green colors here. Um, a lot, of, a lot of water also. Um, very multicultural. Um, so you grew up with people from, you know, Somalia. Um, Arabs, Iranians, Swedes, obviously too. So it's like living in a place where, yeah, you got everything mixed in. We're right now at the train line in the end station of Festival Strand. Um, here we used to do something called back jumping. Tell us what that is, because that's kind of crucial to the start of your of your journey. Yeah, so it's when a train stops at a station. Uh, and when every time a train stops, you have a few seconds or minutes to, to paint something on the train. What we used to do then is to gather a crew and cut the fences, uh, go through and do a painting together, basically. So this is where your creative juices first started flowing. We're doing something that's against the law. And now, fast forward 10 years or so, and you're running a wearable tech startup in Stockholm. So there's a lot to talk about of how you got from one point to the other. But tell us a bit more about this graffiti scene. I think a lot of people that aren't in it can find it hard to understand. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, the graffiti world, like all other worlds, uh, is a small bubble. So, but graffiti basically is is communications, right? Uh, but instead of communicating to, to the society, we communicate to each other by tags and paintings that other people necessarily don't understand, but we do. Um, so that's our way um, of speaking to each other. And what did it mean to you to be part of that community and to use that method to express yourself? Um, you know, I'm very proud of that community. And that's where I learned the first basic of expressing myself. So if you grew up in the suburbs and if you're art head, um, then you turn to graffiti. Um, the hustlers became, you know, I don't want to say drug dealers, but, you know, they, they want some other way. And... And, and the good, cl- uh, good kids in class, you know, turn to Ica or something. Ica is a supermarket. You were breaking the law, though, when you yeah. were growing up by, by doing the graffiti. How do you feel about that now? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we never saw it like breaking the law. We just saw it like something normal because everybody somehow broke the law. But we didn't see ourselves as criminals or, criminals or something like that. I mean, the real criminals would probably laugh at us, like painting graffiti, that, that's not a real crime. And how I see it, see it on it now, I mean, I'm quite proud of it. I mean, that's where my adventure started. So how did you go from graffiti artist to creating wearable technology? It's a long journey, but talk us through firstly how the graffiti ended up becoming more of a respected form of art in the mainstream world. So... 
all of a sudden, I mean, the the fine art world, you know, started to have interest for for graffiti. A lot of attention, you know, to Banksy, the, the the British artist, and you know, a lot of stuff that was happening around the globe. So I basically was in the high school, and and you know, I had to figure out something to do for my, for for a living. Um, and I have been and I had been painting graffiti for I mean six five years at that time. So basically, you know, I just started hustling. Eventually, I got spotted by the Nobel Museum, and they picked me up, and you know, started to to do exhibition with my with my paintings, and from there it took off. That's no small museum. I mean, Alfred <laughs> Nobel, the founder of the Nobel Prizes. This is the yeah. museum in in the centre of Stockholm, exhibiting your work. That is cool. Uh, I don't know why they did. I mean, I can't speak for them, but but yeah, of course, that that was a big moment. What did your friends think? Did they still think you were cool? Um, so I mean, in the beginning, they were they were really doubtful to, to this entire thing. They were like, "Okay, we are about painting trains. We we don't do we don't do canvases. We don't do stuff like that. We paint trains, and that's it." And I was a bit isolated in in the in the graffiti world, you know, in the beginning. But quickly, you know, people start to understand understand you know the entire thing. And I still had my friends and, and, and stuff like that. And your work was then commissioned by a number of big companies here in Sweden and around the world. Tell us a bit about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, what I could say about that is that that entire that entire time, I mean, it, it was a very fumbling time. Um, it was a lot of fun, you know, some big numbers involved, um, at least for a guy in high school. What do you mean by that? Give us a bit more detail. Yeah, so I mean, I could get like yeah, two hundred fifty dollars for just showing up somewhere um, per hour, um, but you know. I basically used all the money just to buy more spray paint. So you were so passionate about graffiti, so passionate about art, and then came a move to the tech scene. Yeah. How and why? Yeah, so that happened without me even realizing that. Um, so I was doing all this art stuff, um, and uh, I got a little bit involved in fashion, not too much, but all of a sudden, you know, society basically started clapping on my shoulders and said, you know, good job. Uh, and when that happens, you you end up in something called the entrepreneur community. Um, and that community is very tangled up with the tech community here in Stockholm because, you know, Stockholm is one of the, the world's number one tech, tech cities, basically. So... When all these things was happening, I ended up in a TV show called Idéfabriken, which was a show about uh, Sweden's ne- next success startup. It kind of means Ideas Factory in English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, my girlfriend's dog had uh, my ex-girlfriend's dog had ran ran away at that time, and we was put in a room, and it was like come up with a great idea. And the basic first insight I had was like, okay, well, could you put something on a dog? What do you always have with you? Uh, well, you have the phone with you. Um, and somewhere there, I, w- I started to brainstorm all these like tech ideas without me even realizing it. Um, and I found out about something called like wearable technology and then I started to look into more into wearable technology and I was like okay cool this is cool I mean so much possibilities with it but damn it looks so bad and you know I mean just, just a geeky gadgety feeling um, so I some, somehow saw the possibilities with technology um, and the possibilities I had with my previous knowledge from the art world and I somehow wanted to combine that and bridge the gap between those two uh, and that's where I started to find my niche in the in the tech world and the art world 
final product is called Tracy Trackers, and it is wearable technology for dogs. Yeah. So tell us about it. What does it look like? How does it work? Trace is a device that you attach to your dog's collar, um, then it's uh, connected to an app, and the app predicts the dog's health by itself. So it analyzes different parameters like how the dog sleeps, eats, walks, runs, all these different things, um, and then it starts predicting the next move of the dog. So it might say, okay, well, Pedro here has been sleeping way too much and been less too active than it used to, and compared to other Frenchies in, in the in the system, some that's weird so um, your French might have an indication of these illnesses then it also tracks the dogs um, the dog in real time in a map so you can make safety areas if the dog walks out outside a safety area um, you get a message and you can follow it in real time in the app so you've got developers working on the very specific tech but you've been putting your creative flourish on how the app looks and what the user experience is yeah exactly so I do what we call concepting, user experience and user interface. And you've managed to fund this through a crowdfunding initiative which exploded basically. Yeah. Uh, tell the listeners about that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, I've been doing something called bootstrapping in the, in the startup community, which means that you have no money but do everything yourself. So I was doing that for a couple of years and um, basically just developing as much of the product uh, myself that I could and find um, talent that, uh, that would like to help me. So, yes, we did a crowdfunding campaign. What crowdfunding is, is it's a platform where you upload your project and you say, hey, people, um, I got a prototype. Uh, I've done this cool thing. Uh, now I want to mass produce it. Do you want, do you want to help supporting it? Um, if you like to, um, you can pre, pre-order yours right now. Uh, so we did that and we got funded in 45 minutes, uh, which was fun, really fun. I mean, I had a, I had a belief. So... Yeah, I had it. So I wasn't that shocked, actually. I mean, everything was very calculated. What happens now? What's your business plan? Yeah, so we hope to grow and scale as, as much as possible, as fast as possible, to help as many dogs as possible. <laughs> it's a very impressive journey. Yeah. But what things are you having to troubleshoot along the way? In the Tracy product, um, like, yeah, specific, we're working a lot of on, you know, the artificial intelligence and you know how to predict health and you know every, every math and algorithm that goes into that I mean it's a very technical project and so we're facing some some challenges there and then you know I, I struggled with the with, with the number one challenge that I've been struggling since day one I mean I grew up as a kid here in Hesselby I don't have all the business business wisdom and all the business knowledge and I learn every day so I don't all the time know where I'm going I just know that I'm going forward where do you get your support and advice and knowledge from if, as you say, you're from a place where there's not necessarily many people around you doing the same kind of thing? Yeah, so yeah, so, so, so that's been like one of the biggest issues I, uh, I had since the beginning. I, I've been like really lonely for a long time, I feel. I mean, like really, really lonely because um, I had no one to talk to, basically. But, you know, somehow you meet people and, you know, you have a coffee and, you know, you talk and you learn. But you don't have like, OK, your parents know someone that knows someone that knows someone. You know, I don't have that that foundation. I mean, and what about your parents? They moved here from Iran. You were born in Sweden. 
What did they think of your of your life choices, having moved here to give you a better life? Yeah, <laughs> so they they basically wanted me to become a doctor, and um, I didn't become that. I mean, they really they enjoyed gra- gra- graffiti. They didn't dislike that at all. Um, they just thought that I should uh, read a lot of mathematics besides my graffiti paintings and. Um, so they supported that, and sure, it was very doubtful in the beginning. Whereas, but I basically said I would jump school, jump out of school, and stuff like that. But now, I mean, we're seeing all the social proof, uh, everything going well. I mean, so now they're more calm. You are quite an inspirational figure for people within this suburb and other suburbs like it. For someone that has made it in a different way, do you, do you see yourself as a role model? Um, I don't see myself at all as a role model. I think someday I will. Like, I mean, I can be confident in saying that. I don't think I, you know, should make myself small and say that I won't. But but I'm not Slatan yet. I mean, it's quite a long way. <laughs> what would your advice be to kids growing up here, though? I mean, we're sat by the train tracks now. There's still graffiti. There's still people going out and, and doing that. What would be your advice to them about their options, their future? The number one thing for all people, um, I mean, it doesn't matter where, where you are from, it's like... Um, make all your choices by heart and then then uh, when when you jump into the adventure adventure that your heart leads you to then use your head to solve those issues and those problems that come up in, um, during the way don't follow your head and then somewhere try to like lurk in your heart in some way how empowered do you feel about the fact that you've been able to do that you've been able to be authentic to your dreams in a way that other people haven't yeah so that's what I'm most proud of I mean I don't think I'm successful yet I don't think I'm even close to to be what I want to be Uh, but sure I mean I've stick to the dream and you know I fought a fought a couple of years now and um, it's going well and you know I'm proud of that been listening to The Stockholmer, an independent podcast by Maddie Savage with production assistance from Benoit Derrière. Join our community on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to find out more about our inspiring guests. And if you'd like to see your business joining the likes of My News Desk and Capital in sponsoring the podcast, we would love to hear from you.